This lovely couple is standing under the chuppah, the wedding ceremony taking place under the canopy. What did this groom do on the Shabbos before his wedding? He did something unique. What did he do and why did he do it? We'll touch upon that soon. This picture is from the Israeli city of Meron in northern Israel. This was taken on Lag Baomer, which is a minor Jewish holiday coming up this Wednesday evening and Thursday, where we celebrate around a bonfire with music, dancing, and a great celebration. Why do we light a bonfire? And what is its significance? We'll talk about that today. Good afternoon, it's Tuesday, 12.15 p.m., time for lunch and learn, where we take 60 minutes or so to study and explore a concept, an idea from a Torah perspective using traditional Jewish sources from the Torah, from Talmud, from Midrash, from Alacha, and today from Kabbalah. Today's lesson is titled, A Taste of Kabbalah. What does this got to do with Lag Bomer? We will see in just a few moments. I will begin with a blessing. Get a drink, get something to eat, and print out today's source sheet from this post. Or in your email inbox, you can see it. Let's get ready to dive in and study some Torah. Today is rather a deep concept. But hopefully, we'll be able to be somewhat absorbed and internalized in the next 60 minutes. It is a taste of the teachings of Kabbalah, which will give us a radical shift in our perspective on life. This is a teaching of Kabbalah. So Lag Ba'omer is this coming Wednesday evening and Thursday Lag means 33 days, the 33rd day of the Omer counting between Passover and Shavuos. It's the 18th day of the month of Iyar, and it marks the anniversary of the passing of a 2nd century sage by the name of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, the son of Yochai. This Rabbi Shimon passed away, I would say, about the year um, 150, 160 or so, and he is buried in the city of Meron in Israel. I've been there on the day of his passing and other times as well. A small little moshav, a village, which on this holiday turns into a uh, basically a huge city because of the steady stream of thousands and hundreds of thousands, I believe. I don't know if I'm exaggerating, but thousands and thousands of uh, visitors, I believe they say about half a million people visit the site every year throughout the 24 hours of the holiday. Well, we can check that up. And it is celebrated with great bonfires. Why bonfires? So Rabbi Shimon lived in the times of the Roman empire when they ruled the land of Israel. This is after the destruction of the second temple in the year 70 of the common era and the Romans made it exceedingly difficult depending on which which century and which decade exactly but during the time when they ruled they made it difficult for Jewish people to keep on studying Torah and practicing Judaism and of, for sure not speaking negatively about the Roman government. And Rabbi Shimon uh, once expressed himself and he was sought after by the Romans. He had to hide in a cave for 13 years, him and his son Elazar. So imagine, what did he do for 13 years? He studied the Torah. He studied Torah. Rabbi Shimon was a, originally a student of the great sage Rabbi Akiva. And Rabbi Akiva had taught him a specific area in Jewish teaching, the area of the secrets of the Torah, the deeper meaning and ideas behind the Torah, especially after spending 13 years in a cave in the city of Pekin. And some people identify this cave and uh, visit this cave. There are a couple of signs. There's a carob tree out of the cave and a stream of water. And Rabbi Shimon dedicated his life 
to the inner workings of the Torah, disseminating and teaching at least to his circle, his group of students. And although these secrets were generally kept a secret and only to individuals, um, Rabbi Shimon was the first to become a little bit more open with the teachings of Kabbalah. Kabbalah means tradition. It means uh, passed down to receive because it wasn't something that was readily available and accessible to the masses. And it, it had to be received from a teacher uh, by a qualified teacher who found a qualified student. Hence the name Kabbalah. Interesting that in English, a cabal is something to do with secrecy, like a political group or some sort of cabal probably comes from the Hebrew word Kabbalah because it, there was a certain secrecy. And Rabbi Shimon began to teach these teachings and eventually his students recorded his teachings in a book called the Zohar. Zohar means the ray, the shine, the light. Let's take a look into the book of Zohar. Hello Jody, hello Roy, hello Daniel. Welcome to our weekly Torah session. And today is Lunch and Learn number 164. We're going to have a taste of Kabbalah. Let's focus, let's concentrate to be able to absorb, to wrap our brains around this lofty concept and make it relevant and practical to our lives. Source number one on the day that Rabbi Shimon was preparing to leave this world, which was the day of Lag Omer. Lag Omer, the 33rd day of the Omer, which is also the 18th day of the Hebrew month of Iyar, which is this coming Wednesday night and Thursday. On that day, the day before he passed away, as he was preparing to leave this world, he said, this is an auspicious time. I am now going to reveal holy secrets that I've never yet disclosed. Secrets about the Torah, secrets about our soul, secrets about the world, things that are not seen and perceived by most people. These secrets were concealed because I was afraid to reveal them, even though he himself had taught secrets, but these secrets that he's about to reveal on the day of his passing, he was afraid to reveal them. But now I see that God and all the holy souls are present and all have consented to the revelation of these secrets. I see that they are all here to exult in my joy. And Rabbi Shimon proceeded to reveal great secrets of the Torah on Lag Omer on the day of his passing. Today we have the book of the Zohar. The Zohar is the book written from the teachings of Rabbi Shimon. Source number two, after teaching these great secrets of the Torah, the holiness of Rabbi Shimon was so intense. And throughout the day, a fire surrounded the house. As a result of this great revelation, there was a fire surrounding the house of Rabbi Shimon. Rabbi Abba, who was one of the students of Rabbi Shimon, recalled, when the fire subsided, I saw that the great luminary, Rabbi Shimon, had passed away. The great luminary who illuminated our lives with the light of the Torah. A voice rang out. Come and gather for the celebration of Rabbi Shimon. Imagine he had just passed away. And the voice, the heavenly voice says, let's gather for the celebration of Rabbi Shimon. They went to bury him in the city of Meron. Why is this a celebration? Rabbi Shimon requested that the day of his passing should always be marked as a celebration. He was a very soulful and spiritual, mystical individual. And the day of his passing he viewed as a celebration. In Aramaic it's called a hilula, which is the same word as a wedding celebration. Because a wedding is about the fusion of two halves of a soul. Two souls coming together and being united as one. Similarly, when a person passes, his soul ascends to heaven to its source and gets reunited with the source of his soul. For Rabbi Shimon, this was a celebration, a joyous time. And since then, the day of Lag Bomer is celebrated with great parades, great celebration, and bonfires, fires, just as we light a candle in memory of a soul that ascended and passed on from this world for the great Rabbi Shimon who was a luminary who, who illuminated the lives of his students and of us till today with the teachings of the Zohar with the teachings of the Kabbalah we light a bonfire and we dance around the bonfire celebrating the light of the Torah the light of the secrets of the Torah that were revealed on this day and in general in the life of Rabbi Shimon in the book of the Zohar so today we'll take a taste of one passage, one idea 
of this book of the Zohar of Rabbi Shimon and explore it, elaborate and try and dissect this idea and apply it to various areas of our life. Source number three. So we'll take a step back before we read the actual passage of the Zohar written by Rabbi Shimon, whose uh, yard side, the anniversary of his passing, is coming up just tomorrow evening. And let's take a step back to really appreciate what he is going to tell us in just a few moments. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to put them in the comments and we'll get to it. The Zohar. The Zohar means the light, the ray, because it illuminates our way of seeing things, our perspective. So in the Talmud, the Talmud tells us all kinds of interesting things about Jewish law. But the Talmud also has other interesting things like stories. And within these stories, there is contained deep messages. So there is a discussion in the Talmud, source number three. What is the source? What is the Torah source for the popular saying, poverty follows the poor? Poverty follows the poor. In English, you might say the poorer get, the poor get poorer. In Aramaic, in the terminology of the Talmud, it is poverty follows the poor. If someone is poor, poverty follows them and they become even more poor. And the Talmud is asking, what is the Torah source? Where in the Torah, which verse in the books of the Torah can we identify as the source where this idea is shown? And the Talmud answers, the leper in whom the plague is shall cry, unclean, unclean. In the book of Leviticus, the Torah describes a phenomenon which took place only during biblical times or temple times that an individual would get a kind of leprosy. It wasn't exactly a ordinary skin condition that one would be able to heal with creams or and stuff like that. It was a divine um, punishment for certain transgressions and a person would be afflicted with lesions, something like leprosy. And he was to be isolated from the Jewish camp, from the city, until he would return and return, meaning teshuva, better himself, regret his misdeeds, and then he would become purified. Now, in addition to going around with these blotches and being isolated, wherever he would be seen, maybe on his way out, and he would have to say, unclean, unclean. He would have to tell others, stay away from me. I am impure. I am unclean. This is the source for the popular saying, the poor get poorer, or poverty follows the poor. Continuing in source three, not only the leper must suffer, suffer from the leprosy itself, which was not very comfortable and good-looking, he must undergo further embarrassment by publicizing his condition. This is akin to the aphorism that poverty follows the poor. He is already poor. He's already um, stricken with leprosy, with tzarat, as it's called in Hebrew. And in addition to that, he gets even more poor that he has to publicly, he has to publicize the fact that he is unclean. It's not enough that he goes and hides in his house and or hides in isolation. Wherever he is, he has to tell people, I am unclean, I am unclean. And that is the source that this Talmud identifies as the source for the popular saying, poverty follows the poor. You're already poor. You're a leper. You'll get something else that makes you more embarrassed. And the Talmud continues with another 14 passages, another 14 popular sayings that people say and asks for its source in the Torah. The 14th one, one page later in the Talmud is source number four. What is the Torah source for the popular saying following a person of means will leave you chunks of fat? That if you hang around someone of means, you hang around the rich and the financially successful, then if you hang around them and you follow them, you will, that will leave you chunks of fat. You will get influence. You will get impacted and uh, benefit from being around those people. 
If you're hanging around the, the rich people and successful people, you'll have good opportunities, more opportunities for investment, for borrowing, uh, for advice. Where does this come from? Where does the Torah, what is the Torah source, source for this popular saying? Hang around smart people and you'll get smart. You'll get rich. And the Torah, the Talmud identifies the verse, and Lot also, who went with Avram, had flocks and herds and tents. Avraham, Abraham the first Jew, was a very successful and wealthy individual. And his nephew, Lot, the Torah says, he also became wealthy. Why? Why? The Torah says, and also Lot, who went with Avram, had flocks. What caused him? This gain of flocks, herds, and tents, the fact that he was with Avram because he was hanging around the successful and wealthy Avram, that impacted him that he also was successful. So we have a source in the Torah verse for this saying. And between the first one and the 14th and the 15th one, you have another four or 13 examples that the Talmud is trying to find the Torah source for popular sayings. Now let me ask you, what kind of business is this? What is the Talmud asking? What is the Torah source? Who says there is a Torah source? Why must there be a Torah source? What is the basis of the Talmud's question? The Talmud is taking for granted that there is a Torah source for the popular sayings of the people. And the question is, what is the source? Maybe the Talmud should have asked, is there a source? Who says there is a source? The Talmud should have asked, Is there a source for the popular saying, the poorer get poor? The poor get poorer, or poverty follows the poor. Is there a source? Maybe there's no source. Why does the Talmud assume that there is a source? It seems like the sages of the Talmud took it for granted that there must be a source in the Torah for the popular saying. And that is quite interesting. Why would the Talmud assume that? Especially, we're not talking about the sayings of the rabbis, of the teachers. Then you might say, well, if the rabbi said this, there must be a source for it in Torah. That's his only source of knowledge. We're talking about inchi, the Talmud's term is the people. Inchi are people that work in the marketplace, not necessarily the Torah scholars. These are popular folk sayings, sayings that ordinary people say. Why is there this assumption that there is a source for it in Torah? And the only question is what it is. And even if there is a source in the Torah, what is the point of identifying the source? It's seemingly a pointless exercise that they're going through saying after saying that they don't have anything better to do. What is the point of finding the source? Okay, I can find the source in any book. So you found it in the Torah. So you found the verse in the Torah, which has a similar idea. If I open the books of Aristotle and I open the history books of other nations, I'll probably also find the similar idea. What is the benefit? What is the idea of this exercise that the Talmud finds it important to record these discussions? There must be something deeper here. We'll get back to this shortly. Let's move on to source number five. We all believe in the Torah. And we believe that the Torah is God's Torah. It is the Torah of truth. It is not just a set of laws that came up, came up, was put together by a group of humans. This was authored by the creator of heaven and earth, by God Almighty. But many will view the Torah and its laws in the following manner, similar to human laws. Source number five, it might be viewed, this is a common way of viewing the relationship between Torah and the world. First you have, source five, first you have the people, the land, their possessions, their interactions, their way of life. And then the law is created to deal with this reality and to ensure a stable society. Similarly, God, after God created the world, he decided to give certain messages to humanity so that they could live a particular lifestyle within the world he created. 
In this model, the world and the Torah are two distinctive acts. There is the act of creation. God created a world with the laws of nature. And there is one system. There is a system of the world. God created the world. Then God came along and said, Hey, oh, we have a world. We have humans. There's interactions. There is possessions. We need to create a structure for humans to live in this life. So God gave humanity, and specifically the Jewish people, the Torah. And their ideas and ideals in the Torah and laws in the Torah, which are applicable and obligatory by all of mankind. The Torah was step number two, act number two. The Torah was imposed on this world. There's another system, a system of law, which is here given to the people to live at a certain lifestyle. In this model, the Torah and the world are two separate entities. There is the act one, creation of the world. Act two, the giving of the Torah to the people. Now, let's take a look in the Zohar. The Zohar, the book of Rabbi Shimon, the book of Kabbalah, will give us a radical shift in our perspective on the relationship between the Torah and the world. Which country has the best construction? This is a joke. Which country does the best, has the best construction? The Ukraine. The Ukraine has the best construction. They have plenty of cranes. Let's talk about construction. Construction. If you hire someone to build you a house, if a king hires builders to build him a palace, what do they first need? They need a draft. They need a blueprint where all of the details of what is going to be built should be drafted, should be written up. And then the crew can come and build accordingly, according to the blueprint. There has to be a plan. There has to be a draft which dictates how the building should be built following the plans. Says the Zohar, says Rabbi Shimon, source number six. When God resolved to create the world, he looked into the Torah, into its every word, and fashioned the world accordingly. For the Torah contains every phenomenon and every entity of every world. God therefore consulted the Torah and created the world. We're going to sit on this for a while. We'll chew this over. Here are the pure words of the Zohar. When God created the world, He created the world with the Torah. The Torah is the blueprints. The blueprint of the world. The world was created. Looking in the Torah, creating the world. Looking to the Torah, creating the world. Just as a builder will construct a building based on the blueprints. The blueprints dictates how the building should be built. The Torah is the building blocks. The Torah is the, not the, the, the blueprint of the world. God looked into its every word. The Torah contains every phenomenon. And the Torah is not just the Torah that we see and we read and it's talking about physical things. The Torah Physical aspect is just a manifestation of one layer, one lower level of the Torah. The Torah is extremely spiritual on the ideas of sea and Egypt and all these things that the Torah talks about have a spiritual counterpart, which is the source of the physical element of it. The Torah is the blueprint of creation. When God, therefore, when created the world, he consulted the Torah and created the world. Source number seven, in other words, the Torah was in existence before the creation of the world. Not like we said before, God created the world, he created nature, and then he came along with the Torah and gave it to humanity. No, the Torah is not a separate a separate entity which was given to the world. The world was created using the Torah. The world 
comes from the Torah. God used the Torah as a blueprint to create the world. And hopefully we'll, soon we'll understand that better. Maybe not 100% because it's very lofty, but we'll understand this a little bit better. Continuing in Source 7, the Torah was in existence before the creation of the world. And God used it as his blueprint with which he created everything. There are not two separate separated entities, the Torah and the world, and the Torah was given to the world. They are inherently interconnected and interrelated. The Torah is the cause, the world is the effect. The Torah, every idea in Torah causes the effect, a certain effect in the world. The Torah was used, was consulted, is the blueprint for every aspect in the world. So anything that there is in the world, it comes from some idea in Torah. How this idea became physical in this world. But it all is sourced in the Torah. Now the Torah is spiritual. So the novelty of creation is the physical element of it, the manifestation of this spiritual idea in Torah and the blueprint. And now, what's the difference between the blueprint and the building? In the blueprint, it's just a blueprint. And the building, it's actually a, a physical building that you can walk into and take shelter in. And similarly, in the Torah, there are spiritual ideas. These spiritual ideas are used to build the world. Every concept, every idea, everything in the world is sourced in the Torah. The Torah is used for the creation of the world. They say a story of a group of scientists that came to God and said, God, we are so advanced, we are so progressed, we have achieved that we can create a human being without your intervention. We can do it all on our own. We don't need you anymore. You made things something out of nothing. We can do the same. God says, okay, let me come to the laboratory. And he comes and the scientist puts on the table. a. Uh, he says, we're going to create a human being here. He puts on the table a bag of sand, just as God did. He formed man out of the dust and blew a soul into his nostril. And the scientist says to God, do you see what we're going to do here? We're going to form man and we're going to blow life into this being and he's going to start living and God's watching and God says wait one second that sand is mine go get your own sand that dirt is mine I created that dirt let me see you creating something out of nothing that is the novelty of creation that from the spiritual ideas of Torah came ex nihilo came something out of nothing physical. There was nothing physical here before, nothing material. And came a substance, a physical substance. Source number eight, God took the concepts he had in the spiritual Torah and created thereby his world. Only the physical aspect is novel. But each fact and phenomenon in the world represents a pre-existing Torah reality. The Torah existed before the world's creation because if the Torah was used to create the world then the Torah was definitely here before the world the world was created with the consultation and the usage of the Torah the shape and color of this world reflects a reality within Torah whatever we look around in the world and we see something is a reflection of an idea which must be found in Torah and that is why anything that happens in this world, a phenomenon, an occurrence, there must be a lesson for us. There must be not just a lesson, there must be an idea in Torah that this worldly occurrence is merely reflecting. Everything has to be sourced in Torah. And it's not just 5,782 years ago when God created the world, that's when he looked into the Torah. Because as we studied many times, source number 9, God renews each day, continuously, the work of creation. Creation is not a one-time thing that happened thousands of years ago. Creation is a continuous, ongoing act. Every second, God is recreating the world like a bounce house, a moon bounce, that constantly needs the flow of air blowing it up. There is a constant flow 
of godly energy recreating this world. And just as the first moment of creation, God consulted the Torah, looked into the blueprints and created the world, every moment this reoccurs, continuing in Source 9, the act of creation occurs every second. Therefore, the process of God looking into the Torah occurs as well, continuously. At every moment of history, the realities of the world reflect the Torah. Therefore, if in life the poor get poorer, and those surrounded by rich people tend to find financial success, why is that so? Then perforce, these concepts reflect certain Torah realities. The fact that in life it is that way that the poor get poorer, and those hanging around rich people become affected and find financial success, this concept must reflect a spiritual idea found in Torah. It is this way because the world was cast in the image of the Torah. It didn't have to be that way, but because God chose the Torah to build this world, and every moment that is the way the world is recreated at anything, at any point in history that happens in the world, there must be a source in Torah. And this was a given for the sages of the Talmud. And the question wasn't if there is a source in Torah for a popular saying, it is what is the source? All one sage wanted to identify from the other sages where exactly, which particular Part of the Torah can we identify as the source for this worldly phenomenon, for this popular saying. It's not a saying of the sages. It's not, it's a saying of the people of the market, ordinary people. But if in the fact, the fact is that there is such a concept, there is such a practice, and that the poor are getting poorer, there must be in Torah such a concept which is being reflected in this world, because the world comes from the Torah, which is a radically different way of looking at things. The Torah and the world are interconnected. It's not like I have the world, and then there is the Torah, and there are two separate systems. Let's think of it even more than a blueprint, because a blueprint, a blueprint, you can always make changes from the blueprint. The blueprint might say one thing, but then with time you say, oh, you know, it's not so practical to do it this way. Let's make a change. And what will end up being is that the actual building will not necessarily be aligned to the blueprint. This doesn't uh, fit anymore and it makes more sense to do it this way. So there might be some deviance between the blueprint and the actual building. Not so with the world in Torah. The world in the Torah can be compared to a Websites. Source number 10. Think about a website. The back-end programming codes is the source. Daniel, if you're still on, Daniel, you, told, you shared with me about the computer codes. This is the source. The cause for the website you see with banners, colors, hyperlinks, and etc. The code continuously dictates how the website will appear. Now, if you look at the website, you don't see the codes. All you see is a website. Someone will tell you, oh, there are codes. What codes? I don't see any codes. I see a nice blue banner and yellow, and I see pictures, and I see if I press this, there's a link, and this color, and everything just looks beautiful. But there is a back end, the coding, the programming. In the programming, you don't see all the colors and the banners and the pictures. All you see is codes. But these codes translate on the screen of the site as a website. And the same thing is with the Torah and the world. The world, we don't see the Torah codes. All we see is a world. We see grass that is green and we see phenomena and we see things happening. But there are codes. There's the Torah codes, the spiritual concepts and ideas in Torah, which is the source for anything. Not just back then, anything currently happening because the world is being recreated, being recreated with the blueprints of the Torah, with the codes, the programming codes, the Torah, the Zohar, Rabbi Shimon is teaching us in the secrets of the Torah. We don't see this, but he's telling you a secret. Just like if you look at a computer screen, you don't know the secrets, but there's a secret code. There is a back end with all the programming code. Tells us Rabbi Shimon, he illuminates our lives by t telling us that there is a code 
And the code is the Torah. The Torah is not a separate entity being imposed on this world. It is interrelated. It is organically connected and one with the world. It is a cause and effect. The Torah is the cause. The world is the effect. This leads us to some further applications. Let's turn the page to source number 11. I'll first share a story that I heard when I was a young child that the fifth Chabad Rebbe, Rabbi Shalom Dovber, our Rebbe's wife's grandfather, who lived in the town of Lubavitch in Russia, later moving to Rostov Nadanu, where he passed away in 1920. And he had a younger brother, and his younger brother once shared with him that the scientist recently published that they identified a certain nerve in the brain, and they now understand why when one wants to remember something and trying to bring up a memory, he will tilt his head or her head backwards, lift it up uh, to try and remember something. When you're trying to remember, you might lift your head to try and remember because this nerve, when you tilt your head up, gets open somehow and helps for memory. And when you're trying to concentrate and study something deeply, you might put your head a little bit lower down because that is helpful for this, with this when this nerve is down, maybe it's closed or the opposite, and it helps for concentration. And this brother, the Rebbe Rashab, as he was known, shared with his brother a fascinating thing. This is a picture of the Rebbe Rashab. Um, again, he was born in 1880. I'm sorry, 1860. 1860, and passed away in 1920, quite a young man. And he opened a book, he pulled out a shell, a book off the shelf, he had a vast library, and he showed that his great-grandfather, the second Chabad Rebbe, Rebbe Dovber, writes in his book, in the middle of a Hasidic discourse, in his writings, that there is such a nerve in the brain that when you lift your head up, it's good for memory, and when you tilt it down, it's good for concentration. And exactly what the scientists were coming up with just now, years, years later, almost a hundred years later, or I'm not sure when the story took place, 75 years later, many, many years later. And he tells his brother, don't think that my great-grandfather was a scientist and he was just advanced. He knew it from the Torah source. He wasn't a doctor. He wasn't a scientist. He was very knowledgeable in Torah. And knowledgeable not just in Torah, but in the deeper ideas of the Torah, the secrets of the Torah. And he was able to identify that if there's such a concept in the Torah, then there must be such an idea, a reflection of this idea in the physical world that that's how the brain works. And that's how he knew it. He knew it from the cause. He didn't know it from the effect. He knew it there must be such an effect because if it's in the cause, in the blueprints, in the computer codes, that's the way it is. In the Torah codes, that's the way it is. And that's what he was an expert at. And it must be that that's the way it is in the body. I didn't take a, uh, he didn't take a science course. But that's how he knew it. And there are many such examples. How do rabbi or great rebbes and holy people know the answers to certain things? Because they see it in the Torah source. How do they see the future? How do they, they see the things the way they are in the Torah? And automatically, it's going to manifest itself and be reflected in the world. But they see things from the spiritual, from the computer codes, their computer, uh, code, whatever it's called, the, the job, the computer experts. Source number 11. Now that we have this premise, This changes our view of life, our view of Torah. Because if we look at Torah and the world as two separate identities, they can possibly contradict each other. For example, one might say, if I leave my store open on Shabbos, I will make more money. 
And that money will bring me more pleasure and more joy. That's the rules of nature. You have more customers on Saturday. People are going shopping. I'll make more money. I'll be happier. And then I have a separate thing. I have the Torah. The Torah says it's forbidden to do work on Shabbos, on Shabbat. So I have to lose out. Which one should I choose? It's true. If I open the store on Shabbat, I will make money and that will bring me happiness and success and joy. If I don't, I will get spiritual achievement. I'll be following God's word and the laws of the Torah and probably I'll be rewarded, maybe this world, possibly in the next world, in in heaven. Which one should I choose? Two contradictory systems at times. They are two separate uh, uh, entities. Or, when it comes to keeping kosher, I really like this um, non-kosher food. These crabs are delicious looking, very attractive, and I'll feel very good, I'll feel relaxed, and I'll be happy. But... The Torah says, I shouldn't. Which one should I choose? Should I be happy? Or should my body be happy? Or should my soul be happy? Two separate things. But if we view the Torah and the world, everything about the world, happiness is also a concept in the world, and success and joy and health, it all comes from the Torah. Every idea in this world is a reflection of the Torah. And if the Torah says, that we should keep Shabbos and not have our store open or we shouldn't eat this specific food. It can't be we're going to lose out on happiness. Because happiness, what's the code for happiness? What is the coding for happiness? What's the blueprint for happiness, for success, for, for joy? The Torah. What does the Torah say? The Torah says not to do it on Shabbos. So it cannot be that the path To get happiness is through, not through the way the Torah says to do it. Because the Torah is the cause for whatever happens in this world. It may not seem that way always, but ultimately that is the ultimate, that is the true path. Source number 11, the Torah and the world are inherently intertwined, one organic entity. Always with the former dictating the latter. Accordingly, it is impossible to envision that the world and the Torah are pulling in opposite directions. It would be impossible to assert that the Torah laws are not practical anymore or that they require sacrificing a good physical life. There is no such thing because at every moment the world is being recreated from the Torah. The Torah is the coding for the world. How can the Torah not be practical nowadays? How can we change the rules of the Torah? The Torah is eternal and the Torah is at every moment the coding for this world. So if you want to achieve anything good in this world, you have to go to the codes. The codes are the Torah. This is what Rabbi Shimon is teaching us in the Tsar. Let's give an example, a real life example. In the 50s and the 60s, there was a company called Tsim. It's still around today. It's one of the top 20 global uh, carriers in Israel. Sourced in Haifa. And in the 50s and the 60s, they had passenger liners, and this was used for international transportation. At that time, flights, airfare was not cheap, and this was a means of traveling. The problem was that these ships would sail on Shabbos. They were called Tzim. Israel Navigation Company. It was a government-owned company. Now, the Rebbe spoke very openly in many letters and talks that this was an open violation of the laws of Shabbos, of the laws of the Torah. While others said, well, these laws are old-fashioned and this is crucial for the national success of the new country, the new modern state of Israel, to thrive, to flourish, you must have an Israeli-owned carriers. 
And the Rebbe, here we have in one letter how the Rebbe approached us. The Rebbe said, one second. Source 12. May God help that the start of the liberations regarding the problem of the ships in terms of the violations of Shabbos should result in a meaningful breakthrough that leads to a solution that is consistent with the teachings of our Torah. He says it has to be consistent with the teachings of the Torah. Why? Because God looked into the Torah and created the world. He quoted, the Rebbe quoted this passage of the Zohar, of Rabbi Shimon, of the teachings of Kabbalah. If the world was created with the Torah, accordingly, it is logically impossible that anything in the world should impede the fulfillment of the Torah's directives. It is self-understood that the effect cannot prevail over the cause. If the Torah is the cause, it cannot be that the effect, the, the, the world, which is the effect of the Torah, which is the cause, if the Torah is the cause, then how can violating the cause make a good effect? The Torah is the cause. Observing the laws of Shabbos, that is what will bring national success. Unfortunately, it took a lot of time and the, the, later the government assessed that over 50 million pounds, uh, there was a great loss because of this system that was being done then. But without focusing on the negative, the Rebbe's opinion was, based on the teachings of this Zohar, it cannot be that Torah would impede on worldly success. Because what is the coding for success? You want to have national success, financial success. What is the coding for that? Where did this thing in the world come from? It comes from the Torah. What does the Torah prescribe? The Torah prescribes Shabbos observance. Shabbos observance cannot impede on success. The Rebbe suggests this, source 13, if the Torah wants us to keep Shabbos, there must be a way of keeping this law without national collapse. It might require more ingenuity. It might require harder work. But it is surely reasonably attainable. Yeah, sometimes there are challenges. Not just, In any area of life, there are sometimes challenges. It doesn't mean that uh, it is not attainable. The ships could dock at a port for Shabbos before continuing their journey. The Rebbe suggested that they, the ships should dock so the trip will be a day longer. If someone doesn't want to use this ship, don't use a Jewishly owned company. The problem was that it was Jewish owned and if it's Jewish owned, it needs to observe the laws of Shabbos where we don't travel on Shabbos. It cannot be that a Torah law will cause, observing a Torah law will cause harm. That's not the system that God makes. God doesn't want it to be difficult for us. And if we want to have success, it cannot be that the Torah will impede. On the contrary, following the laws of the Torah is the cause, is the coding for success. Yes, if someone opens a store on Shabbos, there might be a cash flow. But we don't just want money. We want to use this money for good things. Somebody might be making money on Shabbos. But then he'll have to spend it on something else, which is not so favorable, not so wanted. And similarly with other areas. In the 70s, there was a concern for overpopulation, limiting the family size. The Rebbe suggested, based on this Zohar, the Torah prescribes that there is a mitzvah to be fruitful and multiply, have as many, have children, have more children, as, as many children as one can. And now they say all the concerns of overpopulation and crowding was not, was overly, it was exaggerated. If the Torah says that we should do this, there must be that in the world. It cannot be that it will be harmful for the world. or We're not going to be able to live. The true coding for happiness, joy, sex, everything 
is by following the codes of the Torah. The Torah says to be fruitful and multiply, to populate this world as much as we can. Okay, you'll find solutions. Not always it's the easiest. But not to say, oh, the Torah is impractical. The Torah is the cause for everything. That's how we have success in life, by following the Torah. If the Torah says something, that must be the code for goodness for us. How, if we have an issue, okay, let's figure it out. Let's get creative. Let's develop more land or whatever it is. I'm not an expert on that. But that's the general approach. The general approach is God knows what he's doing. The Torah is not inorganic to the world. The Torah and the world are one organic entity. The Torah are the, is the coding for anything good, for anything in this world. And similarly, when we have a struggle in our personal life, here we gave an example of the Tzim Israeli Navigation Company. Even in our personal life, when we might have a struggle with keeping up with the Torah and its commandments, when here the Rebbe writes in a letter to an individual, source 14, when it appears that natural circumstances make it difficult or even impossible to follow the teachings of the Torah, one should recall that God looked into the Torah and created the world. This premise that all of existence comes from the Torah leads us to the conclusion that nothing that exists can hamper our performance of any of the 613 mitzvahs that are contained in the very same Torah. The Torah says 613 commandments. It can't be that the world which comes from the Torah should impede and hamper our performance of these mitzvahs. So it seems in the world that opening the store on Shabbos will bring you financial success. And if you don't, you're not going to have it. It can't be. Financial success is an effect from the Torah. The Torah is the code. There must be other ways, and not other ways, but better ways. More correct ways, more successful ways. You might be having a cash flow on Shabbos, but it's not just about making money. It's about having a happy life. Happy life comes from making money the way the Torah wants us to make money. And it's not about, you might say, oh, the Torah doesn't want us to be happy. No, the Torah wants us to be happy. Source 15, I didn't issue commandments consistent with my capabilities, but consistent with the Jews' capabilities. Mitchell says, God said, I didn't come to make it hard on the Jews. God does not seek excuses to deal harshly with his creature. That's not what he's out to do. He gives us mitzvahs. Might be sometimes challenging, but many areas in life are challenging. That's part of life, and that's part of the system God wants us to overcome these challenges and be creative. But ultimately, the Torah way of life, that is the codes for a nice, beautiful website, for a meaningful, happy, joyous life. Final section. Elaborating a little bit more on this concept. What do we do if there was a break-in in the house or somebody is ill or something went wrong? We check the mezuzahs. We make sure that the mezuzahs in the home are all kosher. What has that got to do with anything? What has having a mezuzah on your door got to do with the health of a child or a household member? If someone is ill, Business is not doing going well. One might start giving charity. What does charity got to do with having more money or being more successful? Somebody's having marital discord, lacking harmony in the marriage. We'll tell them to, that she should study the laws of mikvah, immerse in the mikvah on, on a monthly basis, follow the laws of family purity, and so on and so forth. When there is an issue in the world, a physical ailment or a physical material issue will turn to the Torah. Why? It's this premise of Rabbi Shimon. Source number 16. The Torah is the source of all of creation and the conduit through which God's effluence flows to the world. Therefore, 
when matters of Torah and mitzvahs are as they should be, the matter, matters of this physical world are also as they should be. That which is good for the spirit is good for the flesh. You know, if you look at the world and the Torah, as we did, maybe before we studied the passage of the Zohar, there's the world, there's the Torah, two separate things. So, eating non-kosher food is good for my body. Eating non-kosher food is not good for my soul. But now we know, no. The body is a physical thing. Where did it come from? It comes from the Torah. For it to be healthy, the Torah prescribes the Jewish body should have kosher food. That which is good for the spirit is good for the flesh. It's not just good for the spirit to keep kosher. Not that kosher food is healthy for your body in that sense. It could be fatty chicken soaked in oil. That's not very healthy for your body. But it is the best for your body because it's kosher food. Kosher food is not just good for the soul. If the Torah says kosher food, it's not just for spiritual achievement to connect to God. No, everything in the physical world comes from the Torah. So when we follow the teachings of the Torah, it has its effect on our physical life. Source 70, not only is the Torah true, it is also the truth of the world. Thus, not just that the Torah is true, okay? God created the world, and we have a Torah which is true, given to us from God. The Torah is the truth of the world. The world is the effect, effect of the cause. The cause is the Torah. The Torah is the truth of the world. The true identity of the world is the Torah. It's just the coding. So that's in the, in, in the source, it doesn't look like the world. The world we see is the, what shows up on your website. But what's the truth of the website? It's the coding. You change the coding, something in the website will change. Thus, when we want to determine the nature of any created entity, we look to the Torah as the world was created through the Torah. We should respond to any sort of negative situation by examining our behavior and striving to identify the spiritual flaw that might lie at the root of the unwanted occurrence. This approach is based on the premise that the Torah is the source for everything in this world. Like the Zohar says, if the Torah is the source for everything in this world, so we see something on the website and it's blue and we want it to be red. Hey, why is this blue? It's not supposed to be blue. Let's go back to the source. Let's go to the coding and change something. Maybe something's wrong over there. Maybe there's something missing. Maybe there's an ink that, that uh, got faded or cracked. So if we see in life, in our physical life, that something is wrong, there's an ailment, something's not working well, there's a discord in the harmony between parents and children, whatever it is, there's something lacking. It's not the regular way. It's not the successful and happy way that things should be. What do we do? Must be in the coding, something is off. There's a period missing. There's a law of the Torah that's not being adhered to. Let's try to identify the mezuzah. Let's check the mezuzah. The mezuzah is the coding of the Torah. If we fix the mezuzah, then it will have its effect. It will have its, the, the, if the cause is correct, then the effect will be fixed up as well. We try to identify in the coding what is the issue that needs to be corrected and that will uproot the unwanted effects in the world. What is this approach based on? That the Torah is the source for everything in the world. This is a very lofty way of living life. But when this happens, we try to identify why are things not going so well? Maybe we have been detached from the blueprint. Maybe we got to reconnect to the blueprints, to the coding. It's not about just, you know, I live my life, I have a good time, everything goes well. Oh, then there's the Torah, which is a separate thing. Like the truck driver who comes to uh, overpass and it says uh, Clarence 14 feet. And he checks that his truck is 14 and a half feet. And he looks to the right and he looks to the left. He says, no police here, I'm going for it. You're dooming yourself. It's not about being caught doing something wrong. Some spiritual, you know, thing here, religion. Torah and life go hand in hand. 
We want to be healthy. We want to be successful. We want to be joyous, relaxed, and all the good things that we want. It comes from the Torah. When we live a Torah life, the cause, the coding is, is correct. That will translate into all the things that we want. Source number 18. God looked into the Torah and then created the world. He did two things. First, he looked in the Torah. Then he created the world. The same is asked of every one of us. Every morning, we pray and then study some Torah. And only then do we proceed to our jobs. Before entering the mundane world, we need to prepare ourselves with the Torah. Before we run to work and create our own little world, we need access to the blueprint. And here the Rebbe, based on this teaching of the Zohar, says we should do the same. Our world, we're building our world. We're going to work, we're interacting, we're making a difference. We should start our day by actually looking into the Torah, by studying some Torah. We go to shul or at home and we're praying. And then we should sit down and study some Torah to attach ourselves, to delve into the teachings of the Torah, which are the blueprints of for life. We should be constantly, daily connected to the way life should be, to the coding of life, to the Torah. And this explains, getting back to our wedding celebration, this groom and bride standing under the chuppah during one of the days of the week, on the Shabbos before, Saturday, the Shabbos before, this groom and all grooms are called up to the Torah. This is a tradition called Ofruf. In Yiddish means being called up. Being called up to the Torah to make a blessing at the Torah. Source number 19, the groom receives an aliyah to the Torah, at the Torah on the Shabbos before his wedding. There's an ancient custom that the groom gets called up to the Torah, makes a blessing over the Torah, reads from the Torah. Yeah, and we throw some candies and we dance and sing Mazel Tov. Why? Why the Torah? Why is this the chasa, the groom, have to be called up to the Torah? So that the Torah shapes the world he is about to build. For through the Torah, God sustains the world. This man is about to marry and build a family and get more involved. Till now he may have been studying. Now he's really getting out there. Before building his world, he should have a glimpse into the blueprints. You want to achieve happiness? Here are the blueprints. Here are the coding, the words of the Torah. The words of the Torah, that sustains the world. This is the coding. This is the key for everything you want in life. Source number 20, our final source for today. There is a saying, a teaching of the Alter Rebbe, the first Chabad Rebbe, we got to live with the times. That doesn't mean to change the teachings of the Torah, God forbid. Live with the times means, as explained by his brother, it means to live and study with a particular portion of the Torah studied that week. Every week, Source 20, every week has its distinctive looking into the Torah. We need to contemplate specifically the weekly Torah portion to derive lessons uniquely relevant for each particular week. While all of Torah always serves as a blueprint, the portion of the week is the blueprint for that week. The 53 portions of the five books of Moses excuse me, are divided into the weeks of the year. Every Shabbat, every week from Sunday till Shabbos, we study one portion and it is read on the final day of the week, on Saturday, on Shabbos, publicly. And then we start the next portion. Every week, the weekly portion, that is the specific blueprint for that week, that will guide us, inspire us, and be the coding for that week. And we, find, we try and find in that weekly portion the codes for that week. And therefore, one should set aside time to study the weekly Torah portion for that week. That is the looking into the Torah and then we can go out there to the world and create our own little world. This is one taste of Kabbalah, a teaching of one passage of the Zohar, but a very fundamental one, a radical one that shifts our perspective on the relationship between Torah and the world. They are not two separate entities. Torah, 
guides our life. Torah is the coding for a good life, for a happy life, for success in life. They cannot contradict each other. The Torah, same Torah, which says to abide by the laws of the Torah, tells us that by abiding the laws of the Torah, we will grant, we will be granted everything we ask for. And it cannot be that following the laws of the Torah will make us lose out because the world and everything in the world is merely an effect from the cause, the Torah itself. God looked into the Torah and created the world. Thank you for joining us for Lunch and Learn number 164. Any questions or comments? Now's a good time. Hello, Shelly. Welcome to our Lunch and Learn. And Nancy, feel free. And Nick and Neil and Alexander, thank you for joining us at our Lunch and Learn. Tune back in next week, Tuesday at 12.15 for next week. Lunch and Learn. Tomorrow night is Lag Baomer, where we celebrate the life and teachings of Rabbi Shimon. All are welcome to join us at the Great Celebration on Thursday at 6 o'clock for a barbecue, a bonfire. It's outdoors, spacious. We'll have a nice and interactive drum circle. Please join us with your friends and your families. And take a moment to share this post so others can benefit and enjoy and their lives can be illuminated by the teachings of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai.